This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's time to take command with former NFL tight end Logan Paulson and former Commander's Beat reporter Craig Hoffman. Welcome in to Take Command. I'm Craig Hoffman. That is Logan Paulson. And Logan, you've had a chance to dive into the tape. There is lots to talk about uh, offensively, defensively, and then also... As promised, the situational guru of all of D.C. sports media, Kevin Sheehan, will join us to talk a little bit more about Ron Rivera's decisions, two-point conversions, timeout usage, all that stuff later on in the show. But uh, typically we start with the commander's offense. I want to start on defense, though, because that is where this game is won and lost. They ultimately give up, uh, what, 36 points in the loss, 22 in that first half. And, And the two sides do work together. The offensive ineptitude in the first half feeds a very tired defense, more snaps, and they can't get stops. But now that you had a chance to dive into it, where, where do you think the problems start? And, and then how do they, they – we can dive into how they flow throughout the defense. Well, it's interesting. I think when you watch it just kind of in, in series order, right, there's a three and out to start, right, and then the offense kind of flounders. There's the big, uh, big run, big reception by Amon Ross St. Brown that gets them inside the 15, I want to say. They get four uh, four and out there, which is great. So even though it's a big play, no points. And then the safety, huge punt return. And then that's when the sky kind of starts to fall a little bit. So the defense actually came out, you know, reasonably, you know, d- doing themselves good testament, I think. And it's important for people to remember that. And you alluded to that in your introduction. So, you know, I, I think then after that, that's when things started kind of to fall apart. Like you mentioned them being on the field a ton. You mentioned them um, kind of being out there a lot. But I also just felt like they weren't always in – in ideal situations from a personnel standpoint, you know, and then when they were in good situations, they weren't making plays. And I think that's just kind of, um, that that was why the game was so difficult, you know, so difficult to watch and so frustrating because they kind of took turns. Either it was a bad play call, bad execution, and it just kind of went back and forth, back and forth defensively. And eventually it kind of, you know, that's how you end up with 36 points or whatever it is. Yeah. And a 36 point outburst for an offense, there's going to be multiple, uh, multiple ways in which it goes awry. 
Um, and, and I think that some of those are a little more obvious than others. Um, I feel bad for David Mayo, uh, and I know that not everything's quote-unquote his fault, but it, it certainly seemed like Detroit said, hey, when he's on the field, we're going to get to a pass play and we're going to attack his area. I mean, if someone else could have gave him a lot more help, uh, that was successful. He's, you know, the ball's going, going over his head a lot, whether it's his fault or not. You know, Jamin Davis, they, they put in conflict multiple times. Um, they did a really good job of doubling down on and kind of taking advantage of, of Duran and John as those guys had to play a ton of snaps and were able to get really key movement in, in, in big situations. But there's also simpler stuff where this team has struggled now for a couple of years running with bunches and stacks. And, you know, they, while, you know, some of the coaches and players wanted to be like, oh, we don't, we don't really struggle with that. It just is one or two plays. It's all you need. And one or two plays every week, it's, it feels like, it's not every week, but many weeks for three years running is pretty frustrating. Um, and, and I think, you know, when Amon Ross St. Brown comes out after the game and is like, yeah, we, they struggle with bunches and stacks, they knew if they just kept attacking it, they would get one or two big plays. Certainly St. Brown's uh, big play to start that game or early in that, in that game is one of them. So I, I do think that, like you said, there's a lot of blame to go around here and nobody particularly is performing up to the level coaching or playing that that they expect of themselves or that anybody outside expects of them. Yeah, I think it's also important to give Detroit a lot of credit. You know, even on that play to Amon Ross St. Brown, the way they got to it, I thought was really innovative. You know, you um, you motion the tight end down to kind of to be the inside receiver. Amon Ross St. Brown's in the slot. Then you shift the receiver from the other side and it's smart because again, you go from like kind of a two by two conventional look into a bunch. And like for listeners at home, like your bunch rules are different than your two by two looks. Right. And you, a lot of teams, a lot of times teams will top hat that and you'd have a lot of time to communicate the bunch and kind of say, if this is the concept, whatever, but when you motion to it, you kind of say, you don't give anybody time to, to really um, make a decision about it. Right. And the way they ran that concept, which is what I call, what I call like a drive concept so like a 14-yard in cut, a shallow cross by the tight end, and then a big box fade by the, the point man. The way they ran it and the way they released it, it's perfectly designed to beat in and out or the, that coverage kind of adjustment, right? So I think that's the other thing that was a little frustrating offensively and defensively is, um, you know, good defenses. Like I'm not saying Detroit's a good defense, but they were able to dictate to Washington's offense. And when you look at Washington's defense or how – you know, what did they dictate? What did they do? What did they do to ca- challenge or put anybody in conflict? I thought that um, kind of uh, that blitz, the, the, the blitz stunt that they ran with Jamin on the first third down of the game was nice and smart. And, um, you know, they did some good coverage stuff in the red zone to, 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 to get to that fourth down look. Uh, but I think it's very vanilla, you know, and I think when you don't have the horses, you need to kind of stress yourself and push yourself outside of the box and find things guys can do well. Like uh, I, I hear a lot of criticism from the coaches towards the players. And, um, you know, I, I used to be a player and I was always a guy, it's always the player's fault. But, you know, mm-hmm. now that I'm coaching a little bit, even in a, you know, somewhat limited capacity, like my perspective has shifted a little bit, you know, like it's your job as a coach to find what that kid can do and make it happen, you know, make it work. And I think that's something that I think you'd like to see a little bit more of, like maybe get outside your comfort zone a little bit if you're Jack Del Rio try some different things like we've talked about this before if guys are having a hard time learning what you want them to do is there a way to simplify it is there a way to kind of lay it out and make it a little bit different and i think um that's always good 
And you mentioned Mayo, and uh, I thought even there, I thought um, Detroit did a nice job. They get out there in 13 personnel um, after the big run, and they instead of running the ball out of 13, which is three tight ends, they explode motion. So they basically get to empty with three tight ends, and you get guys in tough matchups. You get simplified coverages versus 13 personnel usually. And I don't know if that's necessarily Mayo's fault. There was one play that I would say he could probably have been better, but the play that they ran, which was basically all go special, is designed to crush cover three. And they were in cover three, and the seam's wide open. And, like, whose fault is that? Is that Jack's fault? I think maybe. Did they not have a check for that? Maybe. And, again, those are the types of things that I say, like, you know, that's that's Detroit um, being ahead of Washington in that example, right? You had a big run because they were in nickel, which we talked about on the phone earlier today, right? The one with it that um, it's like, you know, Swift kind of out the back door off. Of, yeah, the, uh, the 50 yarder to Swift is yeah, there in. I, I, I didn't feel like, I mean, I, I never got to see an end zone angle to see exactly who was on the field for Detroit, but they, I don't think they were in, like, they, did, they didn't have, like, the right personnel in the field. As in Washington did not seem to have the right personnel in the field for uh, the personnel that Detroit had. And the result is, like, Percy Butler gets carried like he's a child 15 yards down the field. Yeah, and I think the um, yeah, not so the reason the play went went big, but like it's it's just like one of the examples that's glaring off the screen. You're like, wow, it'd be really nice if someone besides Percy Butler was the one getting blocked by Dan Skipper here. And that's an interesting that's an interesting play because again, like some teams match thirteen and nickel, but they bring an extra safety down the box because you always need to be at least even in the run game unless you've got some type of special philosophy, which is like you know the Bills do that, the Chargers do that, right? And they, they, they've accounted for that because guys are playing a gap and a half. Jack has been very adamant that they play a gapped-out defense. That's something that he keeps kind of bringing up and, and is constantly kind of harping on. That's one of the reasons that John and Payne had a hard time earlier last year is adjusting because it's a new scheme. It's a different technique. And, um, and then all of a sudden, they have an eight-man blocking surface, which means there's nine gaps to fill. And you only have seven people in the box, which means you're only capable of filling seven gaps and then you're basically asking guys to see when guy like see see when like Cole has to see that John Allen on the backside of the run is reached out of his gap, so he's got to play from the front side A to the backside A. Like, are you as a coach? I understand he misfit it. I get it. I understand that. But are you as a coach putting that guy in a position to be successful? And I know there are guys that can do that around the league. You know, Bobby Warner is is one of them, right? Like. Fred Warner in, uh, in Fred Warner, San sorry. Francisco, and frankly, Bobby Wagner in L.A. Uh, both of those yeah. guys could probably do that. that name up for it, right? Anyway, yeah. so I look at that and I say, that that again, the player needs to take some responsibility, but the coach also needs to take responsibility. Like, there's a counterplay later where F.A. Obata's playing a 4-I, and F.A. Obata had an excellent game rushing. I think he did a really nice job creating pressures and doing a good job. But when you have him kind of fight a double team, you know, that's – Eric Decker and we already mentioned Dan Skipper, like he's not going to win that. And so he gets blocked back into Mayo and Mayo can't scrape over the top to fit the run. And it's a nice 10 yard gain for them. So again, I know you're short staff from a personnel standpoint. I think some of that stuff could have been cleared up this off season. You know, like we talked about the depth thing with Ionitis and settle and all those things. Um, and I know you didn't expect to be in this situation. You thought you'd have Mathis. You thought you'd have other pieces around, but what are you doing as a coach to put yourself in a good spot? And the other thing is, like, you mentioned Mayo, and I like I counted two or three pass plays Mayo was in. A lot of those are Cole. They look very similar on film. Like, I had to go back and rewind. I'm like, oh, that's actually Cole. You know what I mean? So everyone was getting exploited at the linebacker level of this defense. Yeah. And, and it's just – it's a t- – it's 
it the it's frustrating for me as a fan of the team, as someone who covers the team, because I feel like there are there's there's still um, slack in the rope that you haven't pulled in as a coach, right? And I think that's put guys in bad spots. Yeah, definitely. So I actually think I want to play for you something real quick. Um, I've obviously heard this. You haven't. Um, I taped an interview this morning that as we are taping this, uh, it's Tuesday. This is Wednesday's pod. This will come out. The full interview uh, at this point will be on the Hoffman Show podcast feed if you want to hear the full 15 minutes with Robert Mays from The Athletic. But I thought he put it really, really well. So, Logan, I'm going to play this for you and then let let you react to it um, of kind of the way this defense is trending. Because here's the other thing to kind of set this up further and, and bring tie together what you were just saying and the point that, that you'll hear Mays make in, just, in just a second is you have – changed over this roster a bunch and where you've invested it would seem like this should add up more because you've spent on fuller you spent on uh jackson you've spent all the first round picks and not only is it is it not working but this is going to become harder to maintain as they've already paid allen but pain is coming up sweat etc and it just is it's worrisome to say the least here's here's robert mays from the athletic it becomes really troubling when you've spent those sort of resources on one group in your defense and it's no longer a strength of your team like when it was supposed to be your calling card and now it's just something that's like okay like it's it's a fine group when you have no defined roster strengths based on the way that you've committed your draft picks money allocation all of that that's how you become a really disappointing team basically your your best players have to play like really well yeah, and, yeah. and not just your best players the people that you've invested in, whether it's draft picks or financially, have to play really well, and these guys are not. And the question then becomes is, did you miss in the evaluation? This is exactly what I talked about on Sunday night uh, when we, we were recording and I was fresh in my emotions, but like it, to me it hasn't changed. In fact, I've, I feel like I've become more resolute in this. They either missed on the evaluations or the coaching's not up to snuff. Like Those, are, those to me are the avenues. Yeah, so... Um... So I think the thing that sticks out to me is that both of those things are probably true in some element, right? And I think when I watch, you know, when I watch Allen, when I watch Payne, they do a good job, right? They're, they're playing well. But are they having the impact of, like, you know, Chris Jones or Aaron Donald or any of these guys? No. And that's not a realistic expectation for that group, you know? And I think um, this defense is structured around getting those guys to make plays. And I think they do make plays, but how many plays do they make um, in relation to how the defense is structured is a good question. And also like developing guys and then putting them in good spots. And I think that's been a big criticism of this staff kind of throughout is like, are you putting guys in the best positions to be successful? You know, and that's even like the Landon Collins thing. That's Troy Apke. That's, um, you know, I think a good another example is um, Gibson, you know, in terms of we saw how effective he could be week one. We saw how effective he could be the second preseason game against Kansas City as a pass catcher and touching the ball in that way. And then he doesn't get any touches in that capacity in this game. Uh, there's no game plan for him to get those kind of touches. And I think, again, you can't do it every single game. You can't force that kind of thing. But I, I do think you would prioritize that skill set a little bit more um, on all on all on all those accounts, right? And so I think like, um, and I think there is something to saying like I need to humble myself and, and find a way to get these guys in the best position to be successful. And, um, I'm not sure they've done that, and I, and I agree. It, it is it is frustrating, you know. And I th and I don't think the defensive line is playing poorly. I think that's a, probably a, the most consistent group, quite frankly, of the team. But um, other areas where you've invested draft capital and, and financial resources are struggling. Like I don't want to 
be overly critical of William Jackson III because I think he does good things. But I think the thing about him, just like last year, is that for what he's being paid, he's not playing to that level of payment. And I think mm-hmm. even though he, like I said, he does some good things. He's a physical football player. He's got good instincts. Like I like, I, I liked what he did against Jacksonville from a physical standpoint, from a mindset. I mean, he has like a, a he has a huge hit early in in the game uh, on one of the first drives too. Like he's he flashes on occasion. It's just the consistency. And by the way, I think Kendall Fuller is like the the percentages aren't the same, but similarly, like Kendall's no. better than Jackson. But I also look at Fuller and go, when he left here, he was arguably the best slot corner in football. And you come back and you put him outside while you move St. Juice, who is classically built to be outside, inside. And, like, there starts to become some real basic stuff even from, like, where you're playing guys, nevertheless, what you're asking them to do. I guess, well, we'll get to the offense in a second. Let's wrap up this thought, and we'll obviously continue to dive into this as the season goes. Um, but uh, in some level, in an effort to not overreact to two games and not like do these broad sweeping types of things. Yeah. What is like? What can they do in the immediate sure. to? And what should they be doing to get better performance? Is it simplifying? Is it adding things? Is it changing certain personnel? Like, you get to wave the magic wand, uh, and I know that you don't have as much insight necessarily on the defensive sure. side as you as you do on the offensive side for a variety of reasons. Uh, but defensively, like in your your expert opinion, as expert as it is, what's the types of things that you would be trying to do? So I think the thing that sticks out to me when I watch the defense specifically, and it is that they they look like everything they do is reactive, right? They're trying to kind of play these perfect combinations, fit these runs in a specific way. And there's a, there's a, there's a value in defensive players just being able to go run and hit right and when i see cole and i see jamin and they're like oh this is a two by two do we line up like this And they're kind of moving around and there's a motion and you can just see the wheels going five thousand miles an hour like at some point you got to say hey we got to live with our guys playing a little bit quicker and and live with whatever schematic advantage that they, they feel this motion gives them and i think that's the thing that sticks out to me and i know offenses are good but like when i watch detroit's linebackers for example like there's no doubt in their mind. Like they're they are running to the football. They're hitting. They're they're covering. They're 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 playing the game, right? And I think when you're an athlete, like you want to kind of you want to have all the information that you can possibly have and be put in the best situation to, to be successful. But at some point, like you're not a computer. You can't digest all that stuff. And you need to kind of give yourself rules and tenets and say these are the things that allow me to play my fastest. Like Mike Sellers, for example, he's one of the best special teams players I ever got to play with, and Mike was I was always like Mike like you know how are you watching film like what are you looking at he's like honestly dude I don't watch any film and I was like Mike that's crazy everyone watches film he's like no dude because I've seen it enough I've done it enough I don't need to cloud my head as I'm sprinting down the football field with is this a trap or is this a is this a wedge am I and he's like I just like to go and then react to it and I think there's some there's something to that right there's an element of being over prepared and right now with this group it feels defensively specifically it feels like there's too much going on mentally for everybody right like it should be so i guess it is simplified but it's also yeah. simplifying to a point where they are confident and can play fast and there's not like this this moment of hesitation this moment of like oh is this where i'm supposed to go is this where i'm supposed to be and um and obviously you need some structure defensively which is which is goes without saying but getting to a point where you're confident in your assignment alignment and technique 
And right now I just feel like that's not there, you know, in terms of guys that I've spoken with around the building and just from what I see on film. And, um, and again, like if, if, you know, you've coached your, your, your trainer, like there is an element of like over giving too much feedback, right. And not letting right. the, the athlete kind of walk on their two legs and make mistakes and be okay with that. So that's another reason I have a hard time with this Jamin thing is they're crushing this kid. And eventually it's going to get to a point where he's going to be playing so conservatively that he feels like he can't make a mistake. And I do right. feel and like, especially when, when he's an athlete who is at his best, when he just gets to go run, like let him yeah. be the athlete that he is fine. Yeah. Like I honestly, at this point, Logan, I said this on the radio yesterday and I said it in a bit of a flyby cause I wanted to consider it more. And I'm going to, I'm going to use the podcast as the more section. Um, mm-hmm. I would almost Micah Parsons in. I'd be like, you want to know what you're great at? Blitzing. Let's, we need help on this D line, uh, opposite of, especially if Casey's out, right? Like we need help opposite of Montez with a little more pass rush juice. James is playing well. Uh, but like, let's just, let's stand you up on the end and blitz you. Um, or let's find situations where you can come in third down and be a situational pass rusher. Like if, if they're going to situational him anyway, quit messing with him in places that he's not good. Like I would just be like, you know what? You can't figure out how to cover it in zone on a, as an off the ball linebacker. Let's just blitz you and we'll, we'll figure it out later. Um, you know, like there's got to be a way to use him well while mitigating the things he doesn't do well at. The problem is they don't have anybody behind him either. Unless Milo Eifler is like, they're just saving him and, and he's actually great. Like there's no depth behind him either. And so they, that, that goes back to the decisions in the off season, not to bring in depth and competition at that spot. And so it's like, they want to have it both ways. They didn't want to like undercut anybody's confidence by bringing in competition and then two games into the season, they're like, well, we're running out of time. And it's like, well, if you were at that point, you should have brought in somebody else. You, you yep. tried to have it both ways, and, and it's just not feasible. Yeah, I've heard that thrown around about the, about the uh, you know, um, gosh, what's the kid's name in Dallas? Micah Parsons, yeah. Micah Parsons, thank you, geez. Um, and Micah Parsons is a very unique athlete, and Jamin is not quite that in terms of a— Yeah, I wouldn't expect it to go as well. Parsons is one of the best pass rushers we've seen ever. Right. And he's not, he's not very intuitive rushing. He's got some length, he's got some attributes, but I don't know how well that's going to go. You know what I mean? In terms of, and then I think this is the thing with Jamin, I think that I find very frustrating is like, you look at Devin White in Tampa Bay, for example, and they blitz him a lot because they don't trust him in coverage. They don't trust his like mental acuity in coverage. Right. And so they, they've been blitzing Jamin more, but I think the thing that Devin White gives you is he is going to like tear to the football, like an absolute maniac, whether it's right or wrong or not. And I feel like Jamin's gotten to the point now where it's like, and this is how he was at the beginning of last year because they've picked at him. They've micromanaged him so much that it slows him down, you know, and it makes him less effective in both areas. It makes him kind of impotent. Mm. So, again, I think that's something to keep an eye on. And we're talking a lot about Jamin. I think there's a lot of other things going on here. For sure. uh, Because there are guys like when you look at Mayo, for example, and he's playing in very specific packages so he doesn't quite have like the neural load that some of the other guys have. But He's flying to the football in the run, you know, and uh, um, so obviously the, you can do it. It's just about whether or not, um, you know, it's right for this athlete. And and again, like, so I think if you can kind of peel it back, I, I just think about some of the criticism I've heard from people who I respect a lot about William Jackson, the third, like not knowing how to line up versus a tight split. Like whose fault is that? Is that his fault? I'm sure a little bit, but is it also yeah. the coach's fault? Like probably, you know, and so there's like this weird disconnect between the players and the coaching staff, and it shows up on tape. And, you know, good defense, like, again, Detroit's not a great defense, but at least they know who they are and they know what the coaches want from them. 
like even when they blitz, like understanding how they fit in the rush schemes and stuff, like that's complicated stuff, but they do it a thousand miles an hour. So again, like credit to that coaching staff for getting them in the right positions to be successful. And I, I look at that in juxtaposition to what this team is doing here with the defense. And it's kind of the total opposite. You're getting guys who are not confident, unsure, questioning themselves. And that's the players because they're not studying enough, but it's also the scheme and the coaches too. And so what, what is the ratio there? I don't have the answer to that, but that is something that I'm definitely mulling over pretty, um, pretty thoroughly in my mind right now about what I would be doing differently on the defensive side of the football to get a different outcome. Yeah. And, and it also gets into questions that we don't know the answers to. So I don't want to speculate, but I, other than like throwing it out there for as chum to the, the sharks that are circling, like, it gets into questions of like respect and motivation by the coaching staff as well. Like what, you know, if they're not studying, it's why do they feel motivated? Do they feel like if they, it's worth the work? Like, I think there's a lot of questions there um, that sure. you'd have to like inject truth serum into players to, to get. And, and I don't think that unless it gets real bad, we're ever going to really find out uh, unless, you know, again, if it gets real bad and like a coach gets fired, then, then those truths tend to come out. Uh, but sure. short of that, likely not. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Continuing on Take Command, that's Logan. I'm Craig. All right, the offense. Uh, first half, second half, what changed? I mean, I really think – so I re- what I really think happened is Detroit got a little bit more conservative. Like they were – I mean, they, 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 they stayed aggressive, don't get me wrong. But the, in terms of the types of blitzes they were running, it wasn't kind of this all-out, everybody's-coming-to-the-party type stuff that they showed against Philly, that they showed early – and, and I think as a result, it just allowed Carson to see the field a little bit better, the offensive line to kind of provide a little bit more protection. And, you know, I'd say on the whole, the offensive line was fairly positive, like a fairly positive thing. Obviously, there was a couple of pressures here and there. But I think the backs and tight ends early on struggled kind of handling the blitzes, right? I think one of the things that stood out to me was uh, uh, Rodrigo um, Rodriguez is a very physical blitzer. And I don't think – again, I don't think that the commander's offensive line backs – tight ends were ready for that level of physicality and urgency specifically in the, in the protection game, but also in the run game. And it just quite frankly made the offense look a little uh, like sluggish and inept and just kind of confused. And just um, like, kind of, I, I make an analogy to a fight. Like it's like, if you don't like you're fighting Mike Tyson, it's like you want to have great head movement and stay away from his right hand as long as you possibly can. Right. And I think that they came in and were like, well, we're going to just box Mike Tyson. And, um, and we're going to like lean into that right hand. And that's not, that's not how you should game plan. That's not how you should prep. And I think that was the thing that was a little 
surprising about how they came onto the field. Yeah, it seemed like when we were or when we were watching it live, and and I felt this way rewatching the TV copy as well that like they just didn't have an urgency to get the ball out of Carson's hands. Um, they didn't really have a plan to get it out, and it was almost like they thought we can handle the pressure, and they're going to be open. Like there's going to be big plays yeah. open down the field. And then they didn't handle the pressure and they didn't have solutions for Carson. They didn't adjust fast enough to that second half. They got back to some more quick game stuff. They, they got a little bit more creative. Uh, They moved the spot. I I know Jay Gruden was on with Russell and Medhurst and was saying, you know, one of the ways in which he always likes to handle pressure is to move the launch point of the quarterback. And you saw some of that in the second half as well. Um, You know, one of the, my favorite plays that they've run all season, that leak play where Curtis Samuel sneaks up the right sideline. Like that's, that's great stuff, but they, it didn't seem like they were trying any of that in the first half uh, with that kind of regularity, at least. So is that just kind of the classic halftime adjustment? Like, what is that? Is that the answer of like what kind of happened in the second half in conjunction with Detroit maybe taking a half step back on the aggressiveness? I definitely think they got to more more suitable plays. I guess is the word I'm going to use there. Like the. You know, Terry had a, t- a big, big catch. Uh, I think it was his first ca- big, like, long completion. And they ran that off of, like, a play-action pass where they're pulling the guard. And one mm-hmm. of the things that Detroit does a really nice job of is they add blitzers really readily. And so, like, they pull the guard. They cross-sift the back. And what it does is it kind of makes the blitzer say, wait, is this a run? Or is this – should I blitz? Right. Or, you know what I mean? And there's a, a moment of – you can see him just kind of, like, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And it just allows the guys, the offensive line, the backs to get in position, set up, and then be ready to pass protect. And I think that that kind of stuff, you know, you mentioned the leak. I think that's a great example because one of the things that Detroit was excellent at is like when they're blitzing you in the pocket, they all know how to fit in terms of the rush, right? You get guys rushing the inside shoulder of the guard so that he can't help on the blitzer to the outside shoulder of the guard, like really high level stuff from a blitzing standpoint. But when you move the pocket, all of a sudden, the, the, those questions start to pop up. So I really like that they did that. I like that they got the ball out of Carson's hands a little bit quicker. Um, and I, I, did, I do think that early on in the in the half, like specifically on the Jahan play, like there was a there was an element you could tell that Detroit was kind of like, okay, now let's just don't blow the game. And they were a little bit more conservative for a longer period of time. And I think obviously that helped out. And I think the thing that's disappointing though is is kind of is is the hubris that I think the team showed in coming in and saying, oh, we can handle this. Like, that's what they do. That's their punch. That's their club. That's their pitch. Like, you got to make sure you're ready for it. You got to make sure you have a very comprehensive plan for it. And I felt like that wasn't, they weren't, they weren't prepared. They were running kind of concepts that were, you know, pushing the, trying to push the ball down the field. You're inviting, you're, you're really asking a lot of the offensive line there. You're asking a lot of Carson. So again, those types of things are, um, are what stuck out to me about the first half and why I don't think it was super effective. Last but not least on the offense, real quick, you mentioned in in the defense segment, uh, as you were touching on kind of some bigger picture themes, Gibson's name and and how they deployed him in week one versus week two. What what in your mind could they have done more with him and and how does his role kind of need to look or what does his role need to look like these next couple of weeks until Brian Robinson gets back? So one of the things that, uh, again, you know, I think uh, Jay brought up a great point about moving the pocket another way to handle pressure is to go to empty and people say what go to empty you have less blockers in but it's easier to identify the rushers and it's easier to identify one-on-one matchups right because they have to play man if they're going to blitz that way they have to play man 
And the other thing they can't do is they can't add rushers, right? So one of the things about keeping multiple people in is like on the first play of the game, you get Bates blocking, the safety adds, you get Gibson blocking, the linebacker adds, and they're all they're always going to have one more guy than you can block during that philosophy. And they're really good at it. So it happens quicker than a team like that Washington, for example, that's a little bit less effective at adding in terms of rush. So get to empty. And Gibson, again, is a good space player. So I'm not saying it needs to be a screen, but like quick game is very viable for him. Slants, hitches, outs, that kind of stuff. And get the ball out of his hand. And the great thing about the empty stuff is if they are bringing extra pressure, we can dictate the slide. I can say we're going to slide left to, to kind of wall off this pressure. I know that I'm hot off this guy right here and get the ball out of his hand, and there's going to be so much space in that defense. And if you trust your guys to win one-on-one matchups, like I would trust Gibson to beat Rodrigo or Rodriguez, like I would trust that, or Alonzo, or you know Curtis Samuel on the third or fourth corner because their second guy was hurt, like why not? And, I, and so that was, again, I think there was a little bit of lack of innovation there. Um, and I, I don't want to be critical because it's crazy hard to be an offensive coordinator. There's so many variables to think about. But that's sure. probably how I would have thought about using him is, is finding ways to get him out as opposed to having him pass protect where, like, let's be honest, that's not one of his strengths. So, like, let's speak to his strengths as a player and find ways to get him in. And if you want to go max pro, like, maybe go two tight ends and find a way to get them with, with that personnel grouping because Logan Thomas and Bates both are physical in that regard and I think would match up better from a protection standpoint. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they match up against Philly. Uh, well, obviously, it's that on Friday's show. Uh, that's it. For now, though, so let's bring Sheehan in. Talk about clock management. His his favorite pastime, frankly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Greg Hoffman from Take Command. It's not just a podcast. It's the 25th hour of your debt. Your weekly source for all things commanders right on time, your time. A list of household chores. Do them without missing a beat and listen while you work. In the car, turn mundane drives into memorable moments. With podcasts, you can maximize productivity and minimize FOMO. We're on demand, so we fit perfectly into your schedule. Follow Take Command in the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Wrapping up on Take Command, we welcome in the guru of clock management. He's also the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show, 6 to 9, each and every weekday on the Team 980 and the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. It is Kevin Sheehan. Kevin, thanks for coming on, man. So we weren't just recording that whole conversation that we just I had. mean, we were, if you want us to use some of that analysis. I thought we, I thought we were doing it. Yeah, I mean, um, it was great stuff. management discussion. Yeah, well, that, you know. That felt we good, actually. Can we just use that? That was good insight by Kevin. Yeah, I mean, I can go right now. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll clean some of that up, and we'll uh, we'll throw it as, as bonus material at the end of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, all right. So here's here's the original reason we wanted to have you on, though, which is there were some interesting decisions made by Ron Rivera in this game. Uh, let's start with the first two point conversion, and you can kind of walk us through the decisions from there. You know, to go for it twice, to not go for it on the one that Sly ultimately misses on the PAT. What did you make of of how Rivera managed that fourth quarter in a comeback attempt that ultimately falls short? 
Well, if you're talking about the first one at 22 to seven, they went for two to make it 22 15. Right. Um, you know, you're chasing a little bit early there. It's still the third quarter. I, I, I don't really think you should think about it, especially in a, in a game in which there are going to be many possessions left and many scoring types left. I don't think you should chase it then. But context is everything. And if you feel like you've got really good two-point plays and you're in a good situation, I mean, it's a feel thing. I think that the biggest thing with all of these analytical uh, decisions and, and conversations is that there's context. It's information, but there's game context. Um, the 29-15, when they scored, the analytics people will tell you that, you know, if you get down to the last few possessions of a game and maybe you only have two or three possessions left and you're looking at two touchdowns, not a combination of touchdowns and field goals and, and different possibilities, but two touchdowns, that you go for two on that first score. And the idea here, the, first of all, the assumptions are that the two-point play is a 50-50 play, which, by the way, is not a, a, a necessarily an accurate assumption with a lot of teams. I think most teams are less than 50-50 on two-point conversions. Um, and then, two, that overtime is a 50-50 uh, probability if you get there, which isn't necessarily true either. But if you go with those assumptions, the math works. You know, you go for two on the first one to try to get to 29-23, and you go for, and then that gives you an opportunity to go for the win with a kick on the second score. If you miss on the first score, well, then in a 50-50 two-point, you know, assumption, you'll make the two-pointer on the second one. You go to overtime anyway, and you avoid overtime. So it is, you know, the math works if. 50-50 is the right assumption on the two-point conversion, and 50-50 is the true probability of overtime. However, you know, context matters so much. Like, I think the whole overtime thing, if you've scored two touchdowns in the last six minutes of the game, and it's gone from 31-17 and you've kicked on both of them to 31-31, you, by definition, have the other team on the ropes a little bit. Right. And maybe you've got the advantage heading into overtime. So maybe it isn't 50-50. I like the whole idea of extending the game, but context matters. And, you know, the truth is at 29-15 when they scored, they really were on a roll offensively. Yeah. They'd already made one two-point two conversion. And Ron's going to go with the analytics. And in that particular spot, you know, it wasn't – like think about a game in which let's just say it's 14 nothing bad weather – and you score uh, for the first time in the fourth quarter, and you've got 112 yards of total offense, and your short yardage offense on a condensed field has been awful, you better kick, you know, because right. the context would say your chances of making the two-point conversion aren't very good. But in that particular case, they had scored two touchdowns with the interception in between. By the way, they were moving the football when he missed Logan uh, on the seam route and, and overthrew him. And, you know... The analytics, if you assume 50-50 on the two-point and the 50-50 probability in overtime, it works. And right there, they had some, you know, offensive advantage, I think. So I didn't have a major problem with it. None of this started until three or four years ago, maybe five years ago. The whole down 14 score, go for the two on that first score. Nobody right. even thought of it until four or five years ago. So this, Logan, I'll direct this question to you because I think the biggest – piece of context here is that they'd already gone for two and used what I would guess is their best two-point play. Like, how many plays do you even have going into a game 
that you feel good about if in two point situations or short yardage, you know, you're, you're second and goal from the two, like how many of those plays do you even have if you're an OC on your sheet to start with? I think it's coordinator dependent, obviously, but like in my experience, like usually you have three, uh, two or three, depending on like, cause you don't expect to be in that situation too much. And a lot of times people feel like they can recycle a previous play, play just by putting in a different formation. And, um, you know, they have like the one play with multiple formations attached to it just in case they have to reuse it. So I kind of thought maybe they'd go back to the one they ran the first time and then put a little just tweak in terms of alignment and who was running what route. Um, but, you know, like that is, a, that, is a, that is a concern, I think, because you don't it's not something you want a ton of. You don't carry a ton of those plays. You might you maybe could throw in like a like a plus five kind of short area red zone play in there. But um yeah, it is interesting because they they use their best one. And then how many more do you have? One more. And usually that one's not quite as good as the first one. That's why it's the second one on your sheet. So uh, de- definitely something to consider, I think, in terms of going for two twice. But, um, you know, maybe maybe Scott carries 10. I don't know. I've never worked with Scott like that, but it seems <laughs> unlikely. I like the first one. I yeah, love first the first one. Of, like, I'm more of a basketball guy. And it was more of like slipping, a you know, a yeah. pick, you know, and, and and faking the pick and going right to the hoop. And yeah. Dotson did a really good job of selling it. By the way, the um, you know, you also don't count on when you go for two the first time based on, you know, the analytics. You don't count on if you miss your kicker missing um, uh, yeah. an extra point down 15 on your next score. Sure. Uh, and th- this is why we're talking about this as kind of an afterthought. And, and I want to broaden out to a larger picture in a moment, as opposed to like this being the talking point of like, oh my God, Joey Sly cost the commanders the game. At that point, like the deed was done. Well, I mean, I don't look maybe two or three years ago i would have said what are they what are they doing but i'm much more open to some of that stuff and the math does work if you assume 50 50 on both of those things if it's less than 50 50 on a two-point conversion you know it it doesn't necessarily work because there's no you know um you know you're talking about and by the way they're independent events you know uh, Mm -hmm. all of them so it's like if it's 48.6 percent the first time it's 48.6 percent the second time too but anyway beyond that um the, the problem with Joey Sly missing that extra point is if he made it, they could have kicked off. They had three timeouts left. Mm. They didn't need to, to try what turned out to be one of the worst onside. <laughs> it was like awful. In a while. I mean, awful. it was so feeble. It barely traveled three and a half yards. Yeah, I don't know why uh, Detroit even bothered to touch it. Just, like, let it sit there. I know. Yeah, um, it it's have. stupid, but, you know, yeah. they did, and then ultimately commanders never get the ball back. Um, my bigger issue, though, in, in terms of the time management and decision-making on Sunday was how long that drive took to get to the onside kick. Like, they ultimately score on it, but they took forever. I think they got the ball back with, like, 643 left in the game. Yeah. And, and then they – and part of that is, like, the last 90 seconds, two minutes, are them running the ball in the red zone and not taking timeouts. Like, what did you make of how they ultimately try to complete that comeback – uh, and and the point at which it stalls because of the time management on that drive. You know that's a good point. I, I think at thirty six to twenty one, I just kind of considered it to be over. <laughs> I mean, and there were so many good one clock games on Sunday, um, and uh, I think I was like flipping back and forth. I just thought it was over. They could not stop them to save their lives. But of course, down fifteen, you still have a chance. But yeah, that drive took a while. The, the, I thought the funny thing was that there were people out there saying that these were like, you know, soft yards and soft points and they just weren't in the second half. Detroit was, 
aggressive in the second half. I mean, they never went to a three-man rush. I mean, hell, they blitzed on the final play of the game, that fourth and four, which was the only sack of the second half. On that drive, though, it looked a little bit more conservative. Maybe, you know, they weren't nearly as, as aggressive on that one drive, 36-21, as, as the clock's winding down to the, you know, to, to, towards the three and two-minute mark. But um, I don't know. I You know, here we are, and God, we just obsess so much, which is great for us after these games. But I think the reactions now in this day and age, for whatever reason, are so severe. And if you told me 12 days ago they're going to be one and one, and offensively they're going to look the way they've looked at times, I would tell you, you know, there's a season to be had here. I don't know if it's, you know, nine wins or 10 wins or 11 wins, but they're going to be a competitive you know, team, they just got to figure out defensively how not to get torched, especially on the ground. I'm really worried. I don't know how much you guys have talked about that, but this, but you, you know, you say Philadelphia is a good matchup. They've been run on two straight weeks. They're giving up seven and a half yards. You take the quarterbacks out of the equation and it's basically eight and a half yards per carry. They got Philly, they got Dallas, then they got Tennessee, another dual threat with Derrick Henry. You've got Dalvin Cook on the schedule. You've got Jonathan Taylor on the schedule. You've got Cleveland on the schedule. You've got San Francisco on the schedule. They better figure out how to stop the run, or it's going to be the offense isn't going to touch it enough. And when they do, there's going to be huge pressure, you know, every week to make every drive count. And I don't, you can't live that way. I mean, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree. I th- I, the reason I said this matchup kind of, kind of is more favorable is because the run schemes aren't as nuanced or complicated sure. and they're not quite as downhill. So do I think Philly's going to run the ball? Yeah, I do. Is, are they going to run for eight yards a pop without Jalen Hurts? I'm, I'm dubious of that. I think you're going to be, I think there is a world where John Payne, all those guys inside can win those one-on-ones and be a little bit more disruptive than, um, than uh, you know, because I think if you look at Detroit, that's a great example. Like Detroit, um, outside of Hertz, like I think they average like two yards a carry, you know, Philadelphia I'm talking about, like something crazy like that. So as a pure running team, they're not what they were last year. It's like really Hertz driven. So finding a way to kind of manage that is kind of where where I'm at with the Philadelphia Eagles game this week. Yeah, uh, we'll obviously preview it fully on Friday. Uh, actually just was emailing back and forth. One of the hosts of uh, our sister podcast, Go Birds, uh, the Odyssey Sports Philadelphia podcast is going to join us. Uh, so we'll have Elliot Shore Parks on Friday. Uh, full preview then. Uh, Sheehan, appreciate your time, sir. I'll talk to you later this week on right, the radio. And uh, hit hit them straight. Hit them straight. I'm just hitting balls today, boys. You should still hit them straight. <laughs> Loosen up. See you, boys. <laughs> See you. Thanks. Thanks.